Well, good morning. We are continuing and finishing our series today on choosing wisely. I thought before we dive into our series today and the setup for that, I thought it might be worth addressing yet again another tragedy in our country. With what happened in Las Vegas, at the same time another hurricane hitting our, our countryside, I want to take a chance to pray for them. But I also want to sort of give you a thought on that, because I think it brings up a lot of questions about God and evil. There's an interesting passage in Luke chapter 13 where Jesus comments on current events. It doesn't happen very often. And he references simultaneously a, an injustice that occurs because Pilate, this powerful man, killed off a bunch of innocent Galileans. And at the same time, he talks about a natural disaster, a Tower of Shalom that falls over on some folks. And in doing so, he gives a Christian view to the, the view of evil that's worth noting. First of all, he says it wasn't their fault. And why would he say that? Because karma, or Hinduism, their explanation for the problem of evil is every time something bad happens, it's your fault. The universe is punishing you for this life or your previous life. And Christianity rejects the idea that suffering is always your fault. He also rejects the idea from Eastern religions that suffering is an illusion, that this world's a dream world. He says, no, 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 this was real. These are real people. Jesus also simultaneously rejects the idea of naturalism or atheism that says that it's a dog-eat-dog world, to quote Richard Dawkins, in a world of blind random chance, people are bound to get hurt. Just expect it in a, in a world with no rhyme or reason that bad things are going to happen. And Jesus rejects that too. Jesus says that evil is caused as a result of a broken creation. When we see natural disasters, when we see evil acts, something in our heart says it shouldn't be this way. It's as if we're comparing this world with the evil and injustice to some world we've never seen before in the history books. We can only imagine it. And the Bible says that world you're comparing this world to has been placed in your heart. There once was a world with no hurricanes, with no tornadoes. There once was a world with no injustice and no, no murder. And so Christianity gives you the freedom to know why evil is a problem. You're comparing this world to something that it's supposed to be like. And Jesus says that in the midst of it, you can know that I'm going to come and I'm going to hold people account who do evil things. Just not yet. And I'm going to reward the innocent who've been hurt. Just not yet. And in the meantime, which can be a very mean time, I want to be comfort and I want to be hope and I want my people to serve and I want my people also to recognize that, as he says in that passage right after talking about this tower falling over, that none of us have a guarantee of tomorrow. We need to really think about what really matters and what eternity is really about in light of just how fragile life really is. So we want to do what Jesus taught us to do, which is to pray for those who are hurting and to pray for those in tragedy and ask that justice and truth will come out. So let's do that on behalf of our country. Father, we are so thankful that we don't have to see evil as normal. But God, we are angered by it as we know you are as well. And we get frustrated that you haven't fixed it yet. But God, we do ask that we would be your hands and your feet. That we would be a source of hope and comfort to those who are hurting. And God, that you would fill us up with the wisdom we need and the courage we need to face the brokenness of the world we live in. And we ask this on behalf of everyone in Vegas and everyone who's down on the south coast suffering and uh, feeling fear even now. In Jesus' name, amen. What's interesting is we continue our series today because a lot of what you find out with life is that life does kick you in the teeth, right? 
And there's challenges. And those challenges do pull out your resources. And so Todd Henry is going to be speaking with us today, a friend of our, our church and a friend of mine. And he's going to talk a little bit about how we manage our inputs. How do we make sure we manage our inputs enough that we have the resources we need when we come up against difficulty, when we climb those big hills, when we come up against those, those immovable objects in our life? So do that. I want to show you a video of a woman who's preparing for one of the first ever non-oxygen attempts to climb Mount Everest. And let's look at the way she managed her inputs in her decision-making, what she's going to take, what she's not going to take, to prepare for what she's going to need for the challenges ahead. Let's watch. Keep going. That was awesome. (laughs) Good morning, friends. Uh, My name is Todd. It is a joy to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, We all have mountains that we climb in life. Many of us are climbing mountains right now. I would submit to you actually, in fact, that all of us are climbing a mountain of some sort in our life right now. And as we are climbing those mountains, the most important part of the effort to climb the mountain isn't always what happens in the moment of the climbing itself, but what happens in advance, how we prepare, the decisions that we make in advance about the inputs, what we're going to take with us on the journey. And so this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about those inputs, what we choose to take with us on the journey to climb the mountain. Now, one thing I do know in the midst of this decision-making series is that southern heat will cause you to make really bad decisions. It will. It just will, right? And in the particular case I have in mind, my family and I made a trip to Disney World a couple of years ago. So we were in Orlando. It was really hot. And the particular bad decision was ducking into a gift shop to get away from the heat. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I tend to believe that gift shops are designed for the sole purpose of grabbing me by the ankles and shaking me upside down to see what's left in my pockets, right? After I've already spent the price of a compact car to get into the park. But my family wanted to go in. It was really hot. Okay, great. We'll duck into the gift shop. So we walk into the gift shop. My family is strolling the aisles. I have no interest in souvenirs whatsoever. So I find my way over to the side, and I'm standing under what I have come to call my personal igloo. It's a little air conditioning duct, right? And I'm standing there just trying to get cool. And I look up, and I see in front of me what I have come to describe as the perfect t-shirt. And I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to show you why I think it's the perfect t-shirt. It's called How to Draw Darth Vader. Okay? Panel one. Start with the head and body. Okay, so far so good. Panel two, add a cape. Great. Panel three, draw the face, gloves, and boots. So far so good. I could do this, no problem. Panel four, add details and some shading. Finished. Now you know how to draw Darth Vader, right? Here's why I think it's the perfect t-shirt. First of all, come on, it's just funny, right? It's just funny. I imagine this is probably what a conversation would look like between a novice artist and an expert artist. How do you draw Darth Vader? Well, I don't know, you draw some shapes, you know, and you add a cape and you put on a helmet and some boots and then you draw Darth Vader, right? This describes perfectly what we could call the curse of domain expertise, And I deal with this all the time. I work with companies, I work with artists, I work with organizations that are trying to do great work. And the problem is, over the course of time, it's really easy to get trapped in the big principles that have guided our work to date. But we all know that the brilliant work happens between panels three and four. And we all know that life is lived between panels three and four. So no matter how great the principles are going into our decision, we all know that there are forces that can affect us between panels three and four over the course of time that can cause us to make really bad decisions. And worse, and worse, as is illustrated by this t-shirt, it's easy to develop 
little mental shortcuts to get us between panels three and four. And the problem is, those little mental shortcuts could also be described as ruts. We can slip into ruts of thought that prevent us from looking in the place that God wants us to look, from going to the places God wants to take us. And over time, we slip into a place of mediocrity. Now, this word mediocrity is interesting to me because it comes from two words in the original language. Medius, meaning middle, and okris, meaning rugged mountain. So to be mediocre literally means to stop halfway up a rugged mountain, to get halfway to your objective and say, nah, close enough. I'm going to settle in. This is good enough. Why do so many bright, sharp, amazing, talented, focused, driven, open people eventually settle medius ochres? I think a lot of it has to do with not only what we choose to take with us on the journey, but what we choose not to take with us on the journey. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Before we dive in, uh, why don't I open this in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that we have the time and the space and the freedom to come and to listen to whatever you want to say to us. So I ask this morning that you would meet each of us in the place where we are, that your words would come through, that you would teach us as you would want to teach us, and that we would all become a little better at understanding how you want us to think about the decisions that we're making in our life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So there's a story in the book of John where Jesus is talking to his disciples, his closest group of followers, and he's teaching them about how he's the good shepherd. He's the one who uh, protects them, who guides them, who provides them with space and freedom, gives them a place to, to rest, and also corrects them and helps them make better decisions. And then that description is followed by what I've always thought is a pretty disturbing sentence. He says this. He says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. The thief has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. Jesus is talking about a very real enemy, an enemy that wants to rob from us. Now, I believe this to be a spiritual entity. Maybe some of us in the room don't believe that there is a real spiritual entity that is an enemy that's coming against us, and that's fine. But you have to believe that there are forces in this world that want to rob from you, that want to steal from you, that want to take from you the things that God wants for you. Now, how does a thief steal from you? Does a thief walk up to your front door and knock on the front door and say, Hey, I'm here to take your stuff. Hey, line it all up. Here I am. I'm ready to take it. No, of course not. What does a thief do? A thief hides in the shadows. A thief watches you. A thief waits for an opportune moment. And then, when the opportune moment comes, the thief sneaks in and strikes and robs you. Robs you. I believe that we have a thief who wants to rob us in the same way. Now, I'm excited to break some news for you this morning. Uh, we have actually captured photographic proof of this thief in action. First time this has ever been shown in the history of humanity. It just happened last night. I don't know if you saw this, but I'm going to share it with you because I actually have photographic proof that there is a thief. We have a photo of the thief right here. Yeah, there it is. Right there. And the thief is in your pocket right now. The thief is in your pocket. You see, I think that we are living in an age where we're being robbed of our capacity to be present. Robbed of our capacity to think deeply. Robbed of our capacity to focus. And I think this is one of the ways that the thief is stealing from us. See, Jesus said, I want to give you life 
and give you life abundantly. Isn't that repetitively redundant? <laughs> life, last I checked, either you're alive or you're not. There's not like, oh, well, he's more alive today. No, not dead yet, right? No, it's not repetitively redundant because there are multiple ways we can measure life. We can measure life in length, but we can also measure life in depth. And I would argue that many of us have longevity of life, but our life is very, very shallow. And one of the reasons is that we are becoming inundated with information that makes it difficult for us to experience the life that God is calling us to. Recent study by the University of California, San Diego, actually recent, this was almost 10 years ago. This is the most recent data I could find. It said the average American's information consumption is about 34 gigabytes a day and 100,000 words of information. 34 gigabytes of a day of information that is coming into our brain. By the way, this is up 350% since the 1980s. We are inundated with information. What we are craving is wisdom. We don't struggle with quantity of inputs. What we struggle with is quality of inputs. So if we want to make better decisions, the first thing I want you to consider is we have to mind the ping. The ping is a perpetual pinprick in my gut that says, you should go check your email right now. You should go check your Twitter feed right now. You should go check your phone because maybe the president of the United States is calling you with a national security crisis, right? This is the level of urgency the ping delivers. And the ping has a life philosophy for you and for me. You want to know what it is? The life philosophy of the ping is something out there might be more important than what's in front of you. Something out there might be more important than what's in front of you. And it has us living in a state that researcher Linda Stone calls continuous partial attention. I'm always kind of here, but I'm always kind of somewhere else at the same time. Do you think we make our best decisions that way? No, of course not. Of course not. By way of illustrating this, how many of you have, if you have a job or you have an email account or work email, how many of you have checked your work email outside of work hours at some point in the last week? Ah, it's laughable. Good. Let's be a little more vulnerable. How many of you have checked your email since I started speaking this morning? Right? Yeah. It's everything I can do not to grab my phone, pull it out, and start. Why? Because the ping is selective. How many of you get that phantom buzzing thing in your leg where you think your phone's ringing, but it's not even in your pocket? You know, we are telekinetically connected to our technology. This is a problem. It's a real problem. So productivity writer Merlin Mann calculated... If you allow yourself to be distracted every five minutes over the course of an average day, now some of us would say every five minutes, try every five seconds, right? But let's say that you glance at your email every five seconds over the course of an average day. Over the course of an average year, you will check your email 24,000 times. 24,000 times! What do we do other than breathe 24,000 times a year, right? Well, many of us are checking our email that often. So I took this a step further and I calculated, let's say it takes you, every time you do that, it takes you 10 seconds to regain your depth of focus. Now, most experts would say 30 seconds up to two minutes to really regain your depth of focus. Let's say it takes you 10 seconds. Over the course of an average year, you will spend 66.6 hours not doing anything about your email, not even going into your email, just glancing to see if something out there is more important than what's in front of you. 66.6 hours. Now, we've done a couple of things here. First of all, 666, we've proven email is evil. There you go. But second of all, how many of us struggle to feel like we have the time and the focus and the energy we need to be able to bring our best effort to the work that we do, the relationships in our life, the, the decisions that we're making? We all struggle with this. We think nothing of slicing up our life 10 seconds at a time and giving it away to the pain. 
this is a real problem. We are less than discriminating about the kinds of things that we allow into our brain. And because of that, we find ourselves often, I think, making decisions on half of our capability, half of our effort, half capacity. All right? So this is not a new phenomenon. This is actually a function of the human condition. As a matter of fact, there's a story from the life of Jesus where he's out, he's healing people, he's doing all these amazing things. And then the story picks up the next morning right here. It says, Now in the morning, having risen a long time before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Right? But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns. I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. So Jesus is in the midst of doing ministry. Lots of stuff. He's a very busy guy. He's healing people. He's doing all of these amazing things. People all around him. And so in the morning, he breaks away to to consider, to ask God, where am I going to go next? What should I be doing? How should I be approaching these important decisions in my life? And what happens? The moment Jesus isn't around, they go looking for him. Everyone's looking for him. Now, imagine what this scenario might have played out as had Jesus had a smartphone. So Jesus goes away to a solitary place. Father, there's a lot of good stuff happening. I just don't know where I should go next in my life. Where are you? Seriously? Where do, you, where do I go every morning? You guys know where I am. Come on, give me a break. I'm praying. All right. So anyway, where was I? Father, I, I really just don't know where I should go next. What? Seriously, there are a lot of people here who need you to do that thing. Lightning bolt, lightning bolt, devil face, fist bump. <laughs> Andrew said to tell you he is hungry too. Please hurry. How would Jesus' ministry have been different had he had a smartphone? I like to think that Jesus would have disciplined himself to withdraw from the technology, to have the space to be able to do what he is doing. You see, the ping, the ping distracts us from the storyline. The ping distracts us from the thing that God wants to do in our life. And it's so easy to get distracted and to bounce from shiny object to shiny object squirrel, right? And to not really immerse ourselves deeply in what God is calling us to. So by way of illustrating this, let me utter the most terrifying words ever uttered by a human being. Let me show you a magic trick I just learned. Okay? I'm going to put five cards up on the screen. I want everyone to choose one card. Just focus on one card. I'm going to mind meld with you. Everybody have your card? Good? All right, I'm going to remove the cards. Now, along with Chad and a handful of other people here, I have done a tremendous amount of research in the past couple of weeks, a lot of profiling of the people who are likely to be here today. And I think I can predict with great certainty the card that most of you chose. So I'm going to put four of those cards back up on the screen. How many people see your card? Nobody. Five people? Greatest trick ever. Thank you, Horizon. Have a great day. Actually, these are four entirely different cards than the ones I put up the first time. Those of you who raise your hand, come see me after. I have people I can refer you to. No problem. It's fine. (laughs) Why does this trick work? It works because I gave you a problem to solve and you performed brilliantly. With a few exceptions, you performed brilliantly. You did. But in so doing, you ignored the context. You missed the storyline. 
And you see, this is what the ping does to us. Every time we follow the ping, it distracts us from the storyline. We withdraw, and then we have to come back, and we have to, okay, now tell me, okay, what, what's going on again? It's like walking out for 30 seconds of a movie, and you come back in, and you're like, who is that person? Why are they chasing the main character? What's going on? We get distracted from the storyline. So here's my challenge for you as it comes to managing your impulse. This is hard. This is not easy stuff. But I also want you to know there are people out there right now developing technology where you are the product. You are the product. If you're not paying for it, you are the product. And they have people working 24-7 to figure out how to keep you fixed to that technology and to distract you from anything else in your world. So here's my challenge for you. Your mental presence determines the quality of your decisions. Period. Full stop. If you are not fully present when you're thinking about the important issues in your life, if you're following the ping and you're continuously partially attentive, you are not using your full capacity in decision-making. So, when will you be unreachable? I challenge you to develop a discipline like Jesus where you break away, you go to a lonely place, you turn off your technology, you are completely unreachable. If you work in an organization, this is something I work with executives on, Maybe you need to say, hey, between the hours of 11.30 and 1 p.m., don't bug me. I'm going for a walk. I am not reachable. There is nothing that you need from me that cannot be decided at 1.01 p.m. Because I need to break away. You know, maybe if, you know, maybe if you're uh, in a situation where you're trying to make an important decision in your life, maybe you need to go away. My, we did this when we, were, uh, we adopted our youngest daughter about 10 years ago. I went away for a couple of days. And I said, I'm, go- I'm going off the grid because I need to think about what God is calling us to. I need to get away from the distraction, get away from the pressure, get away from... I just need to break away, go to a lonely place to be by myself so I can listen to the patterns. I can think systemically. So when will you be unreachable? That's the challenge I have for you. We are learning fundamentally new ways of being human. And we have to develop some disciplines to help us on that journey. The second thing I want you to consider, so mind the ping. The second thing is mind your narratives. The stories that we tell ourselves affect the decisions that we make in our life. Let me give you an example. Last year, my family and I went camping down at Mammoth Cave. Now, when I say camping, I know for the purists among us, I have to use air quotes because we had access to like three water slides and showers and, you know, it's not, we were in a tent, right? We're in a tent. To me, it's camping. For some of you, I know you're like, okay, you're a wimp. That's fine. But we went camping at Mammoth Cave, and before the trip, my wife felt the need to forewarn me that as part of this trip, there's going to be, as she called it, a little light repelling. Okay. Now, the reason she had to tell me that there was going to be a little light repelling is because she knows that since before we were married, I have had a deathly fear of heights. So if you put me on anything higher than a stepladder, I turn into a quivering mess. I do. And so she said, listen, it's, it, but it's going to be okay. The kids can do it. I mean, we have kids going with us. The kids can do it. It's probably some little 15-foot kitty cliff. You're going to be fine. Great. And by the way, she told me, it ends at a pizza buffet. And if you want to make anything okay with me, just tell me that it ends at a pizza buffet. We're good, right? So Anyway, so we get, we get down the Mammoth Cave. We make our excursion over to Horse Cave. I want to show you the uh, facility here. You can see it's the American Cave Museum. They've got a snake and a bat and some kind of giant radioactive cr- cr- cricket on the sign. Very welcoming place, right? <laughs> and so we go walking in, and they start walking us through the repelling instructions. They put the gear on us. And I'm thinking, in this moment, I'm thinking, like, 
man, this is an awful lot of gear for a little 15-foot kitty cliff. But, you know, they put the helmets on that look like an extension of your head, you know. And so we're putting all the gear on. They give us about a minute of instruction about how to do this. And I'm thinking, okay, if this was really dangerous, they would give us more than a minute's worth of instruction, right? And then we got two bits of information we didn't previously have. The first is that it's not, in fact, a 15-foot kitty cliff, but it is an 85-foot sheer rock face that we'll be rappelling down that lands on a platform and empties out into another 130-foot drop into Hidden River Cave. Nice. I had a little sphincter cleansing action going on at that point. <laughs> the second bit of information is, according to our guide, there is a lightning storm on the way in. It's 120 miles out. And when the lightning storm gets within 20 miles, we have to stop sending people over because as he put it, you can't outrun the lightning. Duly noted. Okay. So you can imagine now, as we file out to go out to the cliff where we're going to repel, you can imagine I've developed a new strategy. I'm going to be the most polite repeller in the history of Horse Cave, right? No, you first, please. No, no, you go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll bring up the Reno. Jesus said, you know, the first will be last. You go ahead, right? You go first. And so I'm letting everybody go out the door before me because if anybody's not going to go over the cliff because of the lightning, it's going to be this guy. But as we get out to the cliff, I look up. And I see my nine-year-old daughter, Ava. And she's standing on the edge of the cliff. And she has eyes the size of dinner plates. And she can't wait to go over this cliff. She is so excited. And in that moment, it was like a universal referendum on my manhood. (laughs) I am not going to be the guy who kind of wusses out on the edge while my daughter gleefully leaps over the edge like a mountain goat. Okay, not going to happen. So they ask for a volunteer to go first. And I say... All right, I'll go first. I want to die quickly and with honor. That's how I want to go. So I go to the front and they they gear me up and I'm standing there and I look over as I've come to call it the precipice of death. I look over and as I'm leaning back, the guy tells me, and I kid you not, he says, all right, now put your butt below your feet. And I'm thinking, that's exactly what I'm afraid of. When I go splat, that's exactly, that's the first part of this game. Anyway, so I put my, I, I follow the instructions and I lean back and I kind of get my emotion going and I start going down the cliff and I'm like, okay, I I can do this. This is okay. So I'm about eight feet down, about 10 feet down. I'm repeating my mantra, pizza buffet, pizza buffet, right? I get about 10 feet down. And as I'm, as I'm going down the cliff, I get just about out of earshot. And all of a sudden I hear the guide say, all right, everybody, situation's changed. Apparently the lightning storm is coming in quicker than we thought. (laughs) So we're going to have to hurry and get everyone over this cliff before the lightning gets here. In that moment, my wife, my kid, my three kids flash before my eyes. And I'm thinking, there is no way you're going to hurry to dangle my kids over the precipice of death just so we can get everybody over the cliff before the lightning comes, right? I'm thinking, you're crazy. What are you thinking? In that moment, in that moment, just to close the loop, we all made it down. Everybody was fine. Nobody got struck. It was totally fine. But in that moment, we were living out two entirely different stories. You see, His story, the guide's story was, lightning's coming in, we all want to repel, we have to get everybody over the cliff if we want to accomplish our mission, which is getting everybody over before the lightning comes. My story was, let's get as many people over as we can, it's totally fine, because if somebody falls, it's totally going to ruin the pizza buffet. That's my narrative. Same circumstances, entirely different responses in that moment. Fierce urgency, extreme caution. The narratives that we tell ourselves 
affect the quality of our decisions. The narratives that we tell ourselves about what's urgent, what's not urgent, what's important, what's not important, affect our decision making. We're often not aware of these narratives until we get into the heat of the moment. How many of you have seen this movie uh, by M. Night Shyamalan, The Village? Yeah, many of you. Okay, so those of you who have, I'm going to plug your ears. I'm about to completely ruin the movie for you. But it's about a group of people living in a village. And the people in the village are told, hey, in the woods around this village are those we don't speak of. And those we don't speak of are these evil monsters who will devour you if you go out of the village into the woods. Okay, here's the spoiler part. It's a ruse. There's nobody living in the woods. It's all a ruse designed to keep the people in the village, to keep them safely and squarely under the control of the village elders. In our society, we don't struggle with those we don't speak of. We don't struggle with narratives about all of the dangers that await for us if we venture out into the unknown. We don't struggle with narratives about that. We're often challenged to spot them. The story that you listen to determines the quality of your decisions. Jesus confronted this in his ministry. He said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You have heard it said that, but I tell you, you have heard it said that in our culture, you have to have a certain amount of dollars in your account before you hit age 50. That, that should take primacy. That's the most important thing when you're making decisions. Doesn't matter what God's calling you to. Doesn't matter the level of generosity that you want to reflect. Doesn't matter your personal mission. You got to have that money in your account. You have heard it said that it is foolish and insane to leave your job at age 37 and start your own business. Doesn't matter what God might be calling you to. Doesn't matter. You have heard it said that if somebody has different political beliefs than you do, they are the enemy and must be eradicated. Doesn't matter what those beliefs are. Doesn't matter that Jesus said to love your enemies. You have heard it said that, but I tell you. You see, if it breathes and bleeds, it's not your enemy. There is an enemy working against us. But we have to be very wise in discerning the narratives that are shaping our decision-making. So what are those narratives in your head? The narratives maybe you're not even aware of. And here's the challenge for you. Who will you not listen to? Who will you not listen to? Maybe some of you are immersing yourself in a media resource. I don't care which political spectrum it's on. Maybe it's on the far left. Maybe it's on the far right. Doesn't matter. But you're immersing yourself in that all day long to the point that that has become your primary narrative in spite of whatever God might want to tell you. This is your primary narrative. This is the filter through which you make decisions now. And maybe you need to say, I'm not going to listen to that. Maybe it's a particularly toxic person in your life that you need to prune, gleefully prune from your life so that you can focus on the narrative that God is trying to tell you, the freedom, the life, the peace that God is trying to give you. Who will you not listen to? It's a critical question when you think about your inputs. And then the final thing I want you to consider. So mind the ping, mind your narratives, mind your baseline. We live in a culture that loves to continuously escalate the stakes. Continuously escalate the expectations for ourselves, for others around us. 
1967, July of 1967, the young musician was presented with the opportunity of a lifetime. The chance to tour as the opening act for one of the biggest bands in the country. Now, you can imagine for a young, relatively unknown musician, this is quite the opportunity. So, of course, they said yes. The night came for the first performance. The musician standing in the wings, obviously really nervous. The crowd's filling up. The time came. The lights went down. The musician walks out on stage, picks up his guitar, and starts performing. But it wasn't quite the response he was hoping for. It was silence. But after a couple of songs, the audience started to liven up. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite the response he was hoping for. It wasn't cheers. It was booze. Booze is in booing, not as in, right? But he, like a professional, finished the set, played through all the songs. At the end of the set, walked off stage to the boos and jeers of the entire audience. Can you imagine how that felt? This is my big chance. This is my opportunity. And I'm being booed off stage. Terrible feeling. But his manager said, listen, it's one city. It's one night. It's going to be totally different in the next city. You're going to find it's going to be totally different. It's going to be fine. And it was, in fact, different in the next city because in the following city, the boos began from the very first note and continued throughout the entire set. And this went on the third night of the tour, and the fourth night of the tour, and the fifth night, and the sixth night, and the seventh night, until finally the eighth night of the tour, July 17th, 1967. Apparently word had traveled from city to city, and before the first note was even played, as he was walking out on stage, the booze began and continued throughout the set. Now by this point, he had had enough. As legend has it, he put his guitar down, may or may not have waved a profane gesture at the crowd, walked off stage, and left the tour never again to tour as the opening act for this massively popular band. Now, if you were present that night, you might have thought you were witnessing one of the greatest failures in music history. It doesn't get any worse than being booed off stage. But I would submit to you, you were witnessing something entirely different. If you were present on July 17th, 1967, when a young Jimi Hendrix took the stage to open for a band called The Monkees. (laughs) I would submit that you're witnessing a very natural phenomenon. You're witnessing what happens when a new idea is introduced into a world that finds new ideas threatening. A world that craves normalcy, a world that craves predictability, a world that craves down the middle, blandness. Jimi Hendrix represented the tip of the spear of change in the world of rock and roll. And that was dangerous to Monkees fans. It was dangerous because nobody, what, is he playing with his teeth? What is he doing? That's weird. Yeah, it's weird. It's also kind of cool. But let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were at a party and somebody said, woo, play me some monkeys, right? Probably not. The monkeys are fine. There's nothing wrong with the monkeys, but the monkeys represented down the middle, same old, same old pop music. Jimi Hendrix, on the other hand, has gone on to influence generations of musicians who have followed. So here's the challenge that I have for you. It's not be Jimi Hendrix, but I think it would have been really tempting for Jimi Hendrix to have monkeyized his Hendrix music, to have allowed the jeers and the booze from people around him to shape and refine the way that he approached the thing that he felt called to to shape and refine his perspective in an unhealthy way. If all he was aiming for was the applause of the people around him, the temporary reward of people clapping for him, he would never have pursued the mission that he was on. 
So we have to be very careful because our escalated definition of success determines the quality of our decisions. And I see this all the time in companies. I go in and I work with a company and I'll hear something like, hey, Joe, way to go. You not only hit your quota last quarter, you did 130%. That's amazing. By the way, 130% is your new baseline. Hey, you did 130. You even did 150. That's amazing. By the way, 150% your new baseline. And we slowly ratchet up the expectations to the point that it takes everything we can just to please the people around us. And we no longer have the space to listen to what God might want to say to us uniquely. Where in your life are you allowing your baseline to become escalated to an unhealthy place where just maintaining your life has become success for you? You have no margin to listen to what God might be wanting to say to you. When you're making decisions, it all comes down to what's going to let me maintain this thing that I've built that I'm barely holding on to because we have so artificially escalated the perception of success to the point that it takes all of our effort just to hold steady. What is your definition of success? And are you allowing your baseline to be escalated in an unhealthy way? So, how will you not measure success? Not how will you measure success, but make a decision in advance. Because when we're under pressure, when the pressure's on, when all those people are booing at us because of the decision we're making, it's really easy to acquiesce. It's really easy to compromise in the moment. Unless we've made a decision ahead of time about how we will choose not to measure success. What does that look like for you? It's a critical input if we want to make good decisions. So, mind the ping. Many of us need to dedicate time. We all need to dedicate time to being alone, to being away. Mind your narratives. The story that you tell yourself determines how you react in a critical situation. Is there an unhealthy story that might be informing the way that you're making decisions? Are you closing off the things God might want to say to you because it doesn't fit the story that you're living out? And then mind your baseline. Let's be very careful, friends, about how we define success in our lives because how you define success how you define greatness defines you let's pray father i don't know what the application is of all these things in my life or the lives of the people in this room but i ask that you would give us wisdom we know that you say if we approach you if we ask for wisdom you will give it to us generously so i ask on behalf of all of us in this room we ask for wisdom we ask that you would Fill us that you would teach us. Help us to apply these things to our life and help us to make wise decisions. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate being with us. Well, four weeks in, and now you're going to make all perfect decisions after our Choose Wisely. If, if you missed a couple of weeks, there are some CDs on your way out. You can check our website, horizoncc.com, uh, and there's a media downloads page. Uh, next week, we have a very special uh, guest speaker as well. His name is Ron Deal. He is a national expert on marriage families, and specifically blended families. So he's going to be with us next week uh, for a one-off on how to make better relationships in your life, whether it's friendship relationships, marriage relationships, parenting relationships. Then he has a very special workshop next Sunday night just on blended families. So whether you are in a blended family or you're connected to blended families, usually all of us are one generation away from the 
complexities of a blended family. And he's going to do a workshop with live Q&A with different questions you can ask and how to handle this. He's the leading expert on blended families and does marriage talks all over the country. So join us next week. Invite a friend, if you'd like, to the 10-11-10 service. He'll be speaking about marriage and family. And then at the Sunday night setup, you can uh, get information in the program on that. You can sign up for the workshop for blended families and come with your questions. And uh, maybe he can solve some of these untang- uh, untangable knots that sometimes we find ourselves in. Thanks for being here. We'll see you all next week for our brand new series. See you then.